here we are Thursday afternoon. We've got students graduating all over campus with their regalia, and I get to sit here for just a spell with my colleague Michelle Ann Rebate, Abate, and um, we're going to talk about your book, Funny Girls. But before we jump into some kind of specifics about that, I thought you might share with our listeners your journey, how you got to comic studies, because a lot of us didn't know we could do this, right? (laughs) Well, certainly being here at OSU has definitely accelerated my interest in comics. It's such a wonderful place to research comics, teach comics, talk about comics, be part of a comics community that coming to OSU in 2013 um, really enhanced my interest in it and the work on it. But my journey for this book actually began way back, probably in about 2002, with the research I did for my first academic book, which is on the history of tomboyism in the United States. While I was working on that book, I would often get on eBay and browse tomboy items, um, you know, and I found a bunch of odd and unusual things. For example, there was a tomboy grocery store in St. Louis in the 1960s. There's been many kinds of tomboy microbrew beers, and I would find like the, the draft handles from a bar. And as I was searching for tomboy things, I came across the little tomboy comic book series. And I started buying up issues of that series. I don't quite have a complete set. I almost have a complete set. So I found this comic book series. I was reading it voraciously. I mention it in the Tomboy book, but just in passing. But that is what kind of started me on this journey towards the book Funny Girls was finding about the little tomboy. And it's been forgotten from history and no one's written about it. It's fallen out of copyright protection, which is how it's able to appear on the cover of my book. But it's this amazing, wonderful character and this wonderful title with these wonderful stories. And so I thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of fabulous things happening And, you know, mid 20th century America with comics that, you know, is kind of off our radar screen that needs to be back on it. Yeah, that's true. Um, So much scholarship today in comic studies is focused on the last couple of decades even, right? Um, With Funny Girls and your earlier work, how do you see your academic, your scholarly studies as a kind of intervention? It could be in kind of university intellectual life or outside of the university? Yeah. Well, I've always been interested. I mean, I've written about a number of different topics, tomboyism, murder in children's literature, sort of right-wing politics, all kinds of things. But one thing that's been kind of a through line is I've always been interested in gender, sexuality, pop culture, things of that nature, and childhood and constructions of, of youth. And certainly you can see that on display here. I guess in terms of my intervention, one of the takeaways I would like any reader of this book to have is to recognize that while what's happening now in comics is wonderful and fantastic and amazing with, you know, women cartoonists and women protagonists and women characters and fandoms, like, that's all fantastic. But it's actually part of a longer historical tradition in comics that's, you know, that that predates the 21st century. So many articles that we read about comics now, again, wonderful things happening, but so many of them frame like, oh, for the first time women are you know drawing comics and reading comics and fans of comics and depicted in comics in a meaningful way and again wonderful things happening now but if we look back to the first half of the 20th century we see a lot of wonderful you know young girl female protagonists and a lot of wonderful women cartoonists like Marge Buell who who drew um, and created Little Lulu so yeah so I wanted to kind of remember and recoup that history oh that's amazing yeah so tell us um Yeah, you mentioned Little Lulu. Um, 
how do, how about Nancy and some of the others that you focus on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of these, um, you know, protagonists. I mean, certainly, Little Tomboy is you know not well remembered, and I'm sort of you know recouping that. But a lot of the others that I profile in these chapters were among the most popular, well known, successful, and commercialized of their era. I mean, Little Orphan Annie, Nancy, Little Lulu. I mean, these were major mainstream strips that everybody knew and read and talked about. And then like, for example, little Lulu was just commercialized. I mean, in some ways, you know, that character sort of set the tone or, you know, made the kind of 20th century example for how to market and license your character. So these were strips that were very popular, very well known. But then as comics histories got written, you know, that late 20th century, early 21st, they sort of fell off the radar screen or they get mentioned very briefly and only in passing. And they're certainly not sort of clustered together as a cohort or a cadre of young female protagonists, which is another thing I'm trying to do is that, you know, we can see them, you know, collectively as engaging in a kind of cultural work and sort of phenomenon. Yeah, really important intervention there in that it's a history that's amputated itself, right? Um, You mentioned just now the significant importance of girls and women as creators and as consumers, readers. And you also mentioned in the book um, the Comics Code, Mm -hmm. a moment in history when there were a lot of restrictions. But something interesting was happening with right with the work that you did yeah with little Lu- or with little tomboy i mean the the series appeared in the mid 1950s right after the comics code is in place and you know infamously you know the office was notorious for you know blue penciling at, at some point almost everything there's that famous story of a baseball player you know whose brow is sweating you know standing in the batter's box and and the office you know blue penciling that that the sweat beads are somehow inappropriate for young readers that's probably one of the most infamous stories that you read about. And then here we have a little tomboy who's sassing police officers. She's really engaging in juvenile delinquency. She breaks panes of glass. She trespasses in, you know, junkyards. She talks back to authority figures. She wields a gun at multiple points in different issues and different stories. She foils bank robbers and steals their gun and and points it. And, you know, it's really amazing that she's able to do all this. And And I think that the publisher and the creator recognize that far from her being young and her being female being limitations, it also afforded opportunities that there could be loopholes to the comics code because she's this cute, adorable, feminine little girl in her starched little dress, you know, kind of adorable and lovely. But she could engage in bad behavior and get away with it because she was cute, adorable, young, and feminine. And in fact, the first comic that she's introduced with her cousin, um, that, that she, she talks about that, that he says, oh, no, no, don't throw the rock through the window because I'll be blamed for doing that. And she's like, yes, you will. And she proceeds to throw the rock through the window. And indeed, it's her cousin who's blamed for doing it and not her because no one would suspect a cute, adorable, feminine little girl would behave in that way. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting how she subverts post-war codes about femininity, but then also the comics code. Um, And they were able to get it past the blue pencilers because, again, here she is, this cute, adorable girl. Yeah, it reminds me of the kind of double speak or coded messaging that we had in the Aesop's fables, right? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, it definitely works sort of in that kind of way and, and very subversive. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's not only, you know, presenting to young girl readers, you know, the possibilities for, for subversion and for empowerment, but then also kind of, you know, thumbing its nose at what's going on in larger post-war culture with gender roles and certainly with the comics code and the office's restrictions about behavior. You talk in the book about, you know, approaching this using, say, tools, um, frameworks, sociocultural, um, even some psychoanalytic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you could, if you noticed as well, because of course you have these really great kind of formalist analyses, right? When the strips that you were so interested and excited about actually started, you started to see them changing the aesthetics of comics or comic strips around them. Yeah, I mean, I think that each of them in their own way was, you know, not just influential from sort of a cultural study standpoint of the sociopolitical messages that are embedded or encoded in the comics about gender, about family, about childhood, but also in terms of the contributions that each of these comics made towards, you know, comics aesthetics and the way the artistry of the comic and how they're rendered. I mean, certainly looking back at Harold Gray's early, which I talk about sort of the first few strips of Little Orphan Annie, I mean, his lettering, his artistic style, the way he's rendering the characters change greatly over time and remembering and recouping those early strips from the 1920s you get a different view about that strip and how it debuted and what it was doing and the impact that it had than if you only look at the later strips um, maybe for even from the depression era of just a decade later in the 30s when you're teaching comics what do you Tell me, walk me through a, a class, your class with comics. Yeah, I've well, I, I teach comics usually as part of. I try to fold it into whatever class I'm teaching. Um, I've taught a couple of of standalone classes on graphic novels for young readers. Um, and they did include some comics like newspaper comic elements, but the graphic novels class focused more on, you know, bound graphic novels rather than newspaper serials and strips of that nature. But I try to integrate comics into whatever course I'm teaching, including at my, my last position before I came to OSU, I, I taught the U.S. literature survey classes, and I would fold in works of children's literature and comics, and the students were very unsettled by, I mean, they take a U.S. literature survey and they expect Faulkner and Fitzgerald, and certainly, like, absolutely, we can include those things, but they were unsettled to, you know, be reading a work of comics. And it's like, well, why can't we? Why shouldn't we? You know, and how would our understanding of American literary history change if it was inclusive of comics rather than exclusive of comics? And so I enjoy doing things like that with students and and to sort of get them to challenge their notions of the canon and literary history in that way. You know, I um, created and now published, have published several books in my Latino graphics series with Mm -hmm. OSU Press. And sometimes I feel like that is more important or more meaningful than my scholarship. But I know it's not true. But maybe you can tell me, I mean, we do matter. Mm-hmm. But how do you see your sort of, you know, work mattering in the world? But, you know. Well, I think in terms of, you know, like I was saying, of just remembering and recouping facets of history that have been forgotten or overlooked or relegated to the sidelines, especially right now in our historical moment where, you know, uh, it just feels especially important to sort of have a long view of history rather than a short view of history, especially elements of history that push back against hegemonic notions of you know, sort of cultural tradition or a progression of an idea or a genre or a phenomenon. I think that offering those kind of counter narratives that, you know, cause people to pause and think and question and be critical 
of received, you know, received versions is important. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Um, we had Gabby Rivera here a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, um, and she's the creator of America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she saw that we had put her comic in the museum on you know, exhibit along with my Tales from La Vida exhibit, and she started to cry. She broke down. She was so touched. And I didn't realize how much um, kind of toxic stuff had been thrown her way, even death threats through tweets and and Facebook stuff. And gosh, you know, the Academy and this moment of seeing how much she appreciated all of our work and our appreciation of her really mattered. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think sometimes in academia we we are disconnected from the flesh and blood creators that we're writing about and talking about and also the, you know, the real world impact that – you know, that comics had. I mean, people read them and their lives were affected by it. Their identities were shaped and influenced. And then the people who created them, you know, they were also shaped and influenced by the experience of doing it and also by their professional encounters during that process, positive and negative. And I think those are really sort of vivid reminders of that. So um, if you were to think about the future um, and, well, let's start with today. Where do you see the most exciting stuff happening, whether it's in strips or comics right now today? Where are you going for your comics? I mean, there's so much happening that's really fantastic. You're doing a lot of great work, you know, sort of um, talking about, you know, things that are happening and developers and comics and cartoonists. I actually brought, I was teaching an undergrad class on young adult literature this past spring, and I included um, Jean Luen Yang's uh, American Born Chinese as one of the texts that we read in common and talked about. And we we had a a session over in the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library Museum. We got a little behind-the-scenes tour, and and we looked at the exhibits and we were able to look at at your exhibit there. And so, you know, I think like the work that you're doing to call attention to creators that, again, sometimes might not, you know, be immediately recognized, you know, by mainstream press or mainstream media. But I think, you know, there's so much happening in comics that the past two decades really have just been an incredible flourishing for cartoonists, creators, characters, titles, and also the visibility of comics into mainstream American culture has been also very exciting. It's a really it's a really wonderful time to be a comic scholar, a comic student, a comics fan and reader. At the in the epilogue to your funny girls, you uh, mention uh, Telga Meyer and Satrapi and G. Willow Wilson and mm-hmm. others. Is that your future direction of scholarship? Well, um, I've written about Raina Talgemeier. I've written about her her graphic novel drama. I've actually written quite critically in a negative way about drama. Um, drama's been, you know, lauded in many ways for its portrayal of same-sex relationships. But the the novel, a centerpiece of the musical, is it's a plantation, antebellum plantation story, which is obviously deeply problematic, which has escaped notice of critics. So it's great that the book is doing progressive things with LGBTQ issues, but in terms of the work that that book is doing for anti-racism, it's falling very, very short. Um, and I'm not the only person to sort of bring up concerns about Raina Talgemeier's work. I know her book Ghosts has been um, critiqued along those same lines by folks like Laura Jimenez and Debbie Reese have done great work on blogs and stuff talking about that. So I think Raina Talgemeier is doing great things, but also, 
you know, um, there's also some concerns moving forward. And I, I mentioned that, too, with the creators that I talk about, that, you know, all of these characters, you know, broke the gender line in comics, but they're all white characters. They did not do anything to break down racial barriers or issues of ethnicity. So we can commend them in some ways, but I think we also need to lament the way in which they didn't go far enough for readers like me or, or readers today would probably want them to go. Absolutely. So, Michelle Ann Abate, as we wrap this up, um, what kinds of courses should our students be looking for from you in the future? Well, I mean, so this fall I'll be teaching a graduate class on literary theory. Um, But, yeah, I offer classes not just on young adult literature um, and graphic novels, but I have a class here on um, Walt Disney, the fairy tale tradition, and American childhood, looking at cinematic adaptations of fairy tales and sort of the feature-length animated films that Disney is arguably, you know, very famous for and has influenced a lot of young people. So I do a lot of things. I wear a lot of different hats, all within the universe of children's and young adult literature. So comics is one facet of that, but I do other things too. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and great to chat with you.